we are in Second Chronicles this morning, which most of you prophets already knew. You probably already are turned there in your Bibles. We all know you're going to be in Second Chronicles this morning, Bible. We're going to emphasize that element of God's house that's the most important aspect, and that is God's own dear presence. God has called us as new covenant believers to honor His presence above all things and therefore to steward His presence. Ironically, even though it's God's presence and He's God, free from all things, He's the Lord. He's the creator and initiator of everything. And yet He gives Himself to His people to be stewarded, in a sense. Where we serve Him and we allow Him to serve us and we ought to understand that relationship and engage that relationship fully. We should be first and foremost about His presence. But He's very specific. He has an extremely specific personality and way about Him. We can't just generically say, oh yes, God's presence, God's presence. We have to know the Lord. You know, it was sung this morning, I believe, prophetically about knowing God's heart. He has a personality, he has a way about him, just like any other love relationship. We should be pursuing the heart of the beloved, not using the beloved to meet our heart's desires. But rather, like David, you know, we want to be people after God's own heart, just like we would love one another as friends, as spouses, as siblings, parents, children. Love is about pursuing the heart of the beloved at our expense rather than using the heart of the beloved for us, for ourselves. So much more for the Lord. That's why David was so special. He was a man after God's own heart, which means he was terribly interested in God and what he was like. And uh, about his, he was interested in what, what God loved and what God liked and, and then adopted that for himself. And so we ought to understand who God is and what he likes and what he's about uh, so that we can then relate to him the right way. And, and partly that's what I want to talk about today. I, I guess, you know, let me repeat this part to get to what I'm saying. We don't just want to relate to God's presence generically. We want to understand what he's like and relate to him himself and be into the things he likes. You know, not use him in a, like a revivalistic mindset. Oh, Lord, we just need your presence. Well, that's true, but do you know what you're asking for? Do you know what he's like? Are we willing to make room for him? He's specific. He requires certain things. He likes certain things. That's, these are some of the principles I'm going to bring up. You know, if, if we want God's presence, then we'll, we'll, we'll host him. We'll host him. He's the guest. And once we honor him as the, as the honored guest, then he becomes the host but not before, because that's what he's like. Even though he's God and he's almighty and he's free in his sovereignty, he's extremely meek. That's one of the ways about him. I mean, just think of how present God is right now. Think of how swallowed up in his creation we are right now. I mean, from the minutest details of the leaves on the trees has God's intensely planned signature to the massive wealth of creation. The globe we're sitting on is overwhelming to us, and yet it's a speck. It's smaller than one grain on the the, the shore of a beach 
compared to the vastness of God's creation. We are completely right now consumed by creation, surrounded by the presence of Yahweh as almighty God and sovereign. And yet, unless you're even paying attention, you wouldn't even know it. Because he's so gentle. He's so meek. He's so non-intrusive. You know, he was acting like he was going to keep walking. And the two on the road to Emmaus said, come on in. Join us. And he did. And then at the meal, he took the bread and broke it. He took the leadership position. He became the host. But only after he was invited as the honored guest. We have to understand that's what he's like. We have to relate to him as this almighty one and meditate on those things and bring those things to bear on our own souls and on the souls of one another, not carnally, but spiritually. And then we'll experience more of his presence. Yes, of course, there's times of specific outpouring, something I'm going to talk a little bit about today, uh, because we're, we're children of specific outpourings, even if we related all the way back to Pentecost. Um, so we, we, we value that. But we have to understand what God is like. And like I've been talking about all along, God loves his house. If we want God's presence, we should partner with him to build his house. Because he's all about his house. But we've been talking about that so much, I'm going to go into this passage now. Because the house of the Lord in the Old Testament, this great temple, becomes a metaphor for the house of the Lord today. And so Solomon built the temple... They took Tabernacle of Moses and then Tabernacle of David since Moses and and fused them together in this permanent building on the holy hill, Mount Zion, which uh, David took to be the the city of the Jebusites, took and made the city of David, which became Jerusalem. And so Solomon, at the the, uh, behest and the desires of David, who wanted to build God God a house, The Lord says, no, not for you to build the house. You're a man of bloodshed, which is interesting. But I used you to shed blood. You know, that's not God's ultimate way. He had to do it in a sinful world. But but ultimately, God is nonviolent. He had to deal with sin that way. That's very contradictory, I know. But he had to do what he had to do. That's the way it is in the world. If he has a nation and he's moving this nation into the land, he's got to do what he has to do. Uh, but he's, he's ultimately not a God associated with bloodshed, but a God who lays down his life. And so the man of peace, who's even named after peace, would be the builder of the house. Because now God is going to take up residence. And so Solomon does so. I'm in Second Chronicles 5, verse 1. just going to read a few verses here. But <clears throat> all the work that Solomon, Sholomo, man of peace, All the work that Solomon performed for the house of the Lord was finished. So he took the pattern that was given to him and he had the house built, including with the help of Gentiles, by the way. So the the house is finished. And in verse 6, Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they couldn't be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh to its place. It's okay. Into the inner sanctuary of the house to the Holy of Holies under the wings of the cherubim. 
So, I don't even know this is the worm. I don't even notice. You know how the person has to come up to the... Yeah, okay. And you know that. You knew I was going to go there. We know what each other's thinking without even saying it out loud. Sorry you're all on the outside, that inside joke. My point is, here you have the house built according to God's wisdom. I'm reading the next passage because of the the sacrifices that Randy mentioned today um, when he opened up in prayer. And then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant in. Uh, And then in verse 11, the priests come forth from the holy place after the ark is put in there. In verse 13, you have the Davidic part brought in. In unison, when the trumpeters, the singers, were to make themselves heard with with one voice to praise and to glorify Yahweh. And when they lifted up their voice accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, instruments of music, and when they praised Yahweh, saying, Indeed, he's good for his chesed, his covenant love is everlasting. Then the house, the house of Yahweh, was filled with a cloud. So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of Yahweh filled the house of God. Gotta love it. Build the house. Offer the sacrifices. Bring in the Ark of the Covenant. And Yahweh takes up residence in his house. This is the great Shabbat. Yahweh becomes more and more intimately present with his people. He's searching for a place to rest. It's such a beautiful image. Can I wax a little bit Old Testament image to show you, you know, even in the very beginning when God was brooding over a chaotic creation characterized mostly by water, it says that Yahweh or the, the spirit of Yahweh hovered over the deeps. The, the, the verb there reminds us of a dove. Have I mentioned this before? I may have, but I'm, I'll say it again. And even some Jewish tradition sees that. And the verb is that which you would apply to a dove hovering. Uh, like the dove in Genesis 6 that Noah sent out. There's a little hint there. Uh, but even one of the Targum interpretations of Genesis 1 sees that as the dove the dove hovering over the waters as if looking for a place to rest. Well, still in Genesis, you have that metaphor pushed more to the forefront with the ark on a globe of water, just like Genesis 1, where there were all the chaotic seas and God had to part them to make land. He did that same thing again later when he flooded the earth with Noah. It was Genesis all over again. He was just using a family who already existed instead of bringing them out of the ground. It was like a recreation. That's why he put the, the, the rainbow in the sky. He says, I'm never doing that again. I'm not going to flood things again. I'm not going to bring things all the way back to Genesis 1 again with water. That's done. But my point is, Noah sent a dove out to find land. The dove again was looking for a place to rest. And he didn't find it, so he came back to the ark. Sent out again... Some of these trees here were sticking out of the top. So it wasn't enough for the dove to find permanent rest, but there was a sign that something was happening when he came back the next time he had the branch. And then I think I have my numbers right. The third time the dove sent out, he never returned because he found a place to rest. He found land, quote unquote. So there's a symbol there because when does the dove come back? 
When do we see that dove again? But when Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And it's like this... The Spirit of Yahweh, like a dove, has finally found His perfect place of rest on a human, the man Messiah Jesus. And you even have the water there. He comes out of the water, He looks up, and here comes the dove. Yahweh is looking for a place to rest, and His favorite place to rest, even though He's present everywhere in the world, His favorite place to rest is on His human people. That's what He was always looking for. And so in Messiah, God wants us to be the place where He doesn't just abide technically, theologically, because we're Christians, we have the Spirit, but to really rest with His presence. Now, changing the metaphor, but same principle, when Solomon built this temple and all was done according to the wisdom and instructions of the Lord, because they, they sacrificed to build His house, to offer God a place to rest, the Lord came and found a residence, a place to rest. And that's what we're about. Okay, We're not just about having relationships because that's what true church is about. That's true. And that's a part of what we're after. But the ultimate goal is that God Himself would be so pleased that He would extraordinarily and intensely rest upon us and in us as his house. So we want to honor God's presence as much as we honor the house, more than we honor the house. In fact, we honor the house because it's God we're after. Not just the way of doing church. It's the presence of the Lord in habitation that we value the most. So I'm going to continue reading a few verses here. Just picking them out in chapter 6, verse 1. Solomon said, Yahweh has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I have built you a lofty house and a place for your dwelling forever. This is what we're about. Building a place for his dwelling. Verse 7. It was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. It was the, it was the human responsibility to build the house. And when he was welcomed as honored guest, he became the honored host. Verse 14. This is now Solomon praying the prayer of dedication. Yahweh, God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing that covenant love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Verse 18. But will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven can't contain you, how much less this house which I've built, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant. And he launches into... Uh, asking God in prayer for God to regard the prayers of the people praying in that house. So Solomon's theology is very developed. Like we read in Isaiah 6, the Lord was lofty and exalted, but the train of his robe filled the temple. So simultaneously, God is intensely present in his house, yet he's also the transcendent sovereign above it all. And somehow the house gives us both. That God's actually in his house, just like he became in Christ. But he's also above it at the same time. But it's the house that brings both of those to bear in us, in our experience and in our hearts. And then finally, way down in chapter 7, a few verses here. Down to chapter 7. So now, in verse 1, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of Yahweh filled the house. 
So it either happened twice or it's mentioned a second time, but this time with the fire. The priests could not enter the house of Yahweh because the glory of Yahweh filled Yahweh's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of Yahweh upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave praise to Yahweh saying, Truly He is good. Truly His covenant love is everlasting. We want to be the new covenant version of this. Oh, so here's, you know what, here's what I'm going to do. I have four points that help us to both honor and steward God's presence in light of these passages. And of course, what they mean filtered through the new. But I want to give just a couple of points that I, first, from those passages um, that I don't have here in my notes, just very quickly. The things that Solomon did to build the house that welcomed God so that he physically came. Uh, For one thing, like we already said, he built God's house God's way. He used God's wisdom, not human wisdom. And we talk about that enough. I won't launch into what I mean by that. That's in other messages that are already on record. But we need God's wisdom to build God's house. God's house is normally built in our culture with human wisdom. We want to build God's house with his wisdom. Okay? There's more to it than that. God's house was holy. We read that in the New Testament. Uh, Paul says to those that are infusing God's house with human wisdom, he says, God's house is holy. And you're God's house. And whoever destroys God's house, God will destroy him. So we have to remember that holiness is a part of what God's house is about. We, you know, that's fallen out of vogue in popular Christian teaching, but it hasn't fallen out of vogue in heaven. It's our covenant, yes, our covenant responsibility to live holy lives and to be consecrated to the Lord, both in terms of his house and in terms of our personal ethics. But notice also what Solomon does. Of course, he brings the Ark of the Covenant in. And so the Ark of the Covenant is itself, it's a symbol of God's presence, but it's also a symbol of his covenant. They were renewing covenant with Yahweh. So covenant relationship is one of the great ingredients that draws Yahweh to his house. People who belong to the Lord and are willing to be married to him, who really do surrender their lives to Jesus. So covenant is central to drawing God, so to speak, into his house. And of course, then you have the spirit of devotion. You have the sacrifices. You have the music. You have the praise. And it's all about God. The attention was given to the Lord. There were sacrifices and singing and prayers. And let us remind ourselves how wonderful God is. And that we're called to be people of unyielding, constant devotion to the Lord. Now, I've been in places where God's house relationally wasn't even built at all. But the people were sure focused on God's presence. And God would really visit in power when people just gave themselves to him. Now, he stays in power when we build a wineskin that can contain him. Otherwise, he could very well wreck, not on purpose, but kind of accidentally wreck what we've built for him. But when we allow him to build, he'll stay. But still, that devotional element was there, and it was something magnetic to the Lord. So let me remind us that we are called to be devoted to Jesus. 
devoted to the Father in expressions of devotions, in prayer, and in fasting, and in, in worship, and in praise. And, you know, any house of the Lord, when, when people come in from the outside, there should be a sense of presence just because God's people are so devoted to Him. Uh, it was said of the, the John G. Lake what, what, what were they called? The the um, the healing technicians? They were called healing technicians. They would be in the healing rooms and people would come in for healing. They were highly trained, highly devoted people. They were powerful people, these healing techs. John G. Lake trained them. Um, a friend of mine who actually conducts Lake's present ministry, Lake's children, gave the ministry over to this man named Curry. Uh, he, he gave me some of Lake's notes that he had printed. I think they're available to others, but he gave me a copy. I got them up in my office. It's pretty cool. Anyway, people would say when they would come into the room, they would feel the presence of God strongly in the room. And they attributed, attributed it to the fact that the, the people who were there to pray, their minds were fully engaged on the Lord. They were just yielded completely mentally and in heart to the Lord. And so because their minds were on the Lord, you could feel God's presence when you came in their presence. So how shall we turn visitation into habitation, so to speak? How shall we build a habitation for the Lord? I have four points I'm going to run through rather quickly, uh, having already given a commercial to other points, okay? We partner, we honor, we burn, and we activate. Those are my four points, okay? First of all, uh, another way of saying what we've already been saying, we partner with God to build His house His way. And I've already said it, and I refer us to last week's message and the few before that, making the table of the Lord central. Building family. God doesn't want to build merely an assembly. He wants to build a family. That's the wineskin of His design. That's the temple that He dwells in. His actual spiritual family, which requires much. But if we're interested in God's presence, we should not be interested in building a conventional ministry but rather an actual family. That's just his way. But I refer you to previous messages, but uh, we'll move on. So number one, partner with God to build his house his way. Number two, now it's a point in our message. We honor his presence. That's our overarching principle. And that's a mindset when we come together. We are not coming together just because it's routine. We don't come together just because we have to. We don't come together even first because of our relationships with one another, though that's a strong second. Our first community is with God Himself. And we want a sense of honor in our hearts for Him. We should believe that He has chosen in His most grand royalty to be most honored when people like you and me just get together to worship and pray. That's his most, uh, his most favorite, his most favorite context of just being. Just like that dove comes finally down on Jesus. This is my favorite, my son. That man. Well, we're the body of that man. It's still that man. And we should have the mindset, there's no greater thing we can do than come together to commune with him. There's nothing greater. All right? Don't check your mood. Check the Lord's mood. 
This is like his, he gets the most royal honor. It's like, ah, now my people are coming together. And King Jesus, who's already here, rises and still visits in a sense and just abides and loves this. And if we felt that, or the more we feel that, the more excited our hearts and the more on fire our hearts would be. He died for this to be the scenario in which he abides. He died for this. He died not just to get people to heaven, but to gather us as disciples who become ecclesia, a community that he feels uh, uh, honored to dwell in. This was his whole goal. This was his target. It's us in unity that gets exploded into creation on Resurrection Day so that he'll dwell in all of creation, but still most especially in us. He died to give us his presence. This is the center of the new covenant, God's presence. So often he is the elephant in the room. The one we awkwardly know he should be the most welcome and should completely leave. But we still have our program. We still got to do things the way we got to do them. And we have to get enough, you know, to support our building projects. And there's just so many things on our mind rather than it's all about him. So we've made him in his own house, the elephant in the room whether it's because of our selfishness in general or if it's our selfishness in the way we build his house, his family requires so much humility. So if we just do things differently, and yet it's God's presence that's just the kind of the, the forgotten factor, given lip service, but still it's, it's, it can get awkward because he has more of the position of the element, elephant rather than the honored guest. And, and I would say if we just come in with the mentality that God's presence is what's most important, then everything will change. So let's treat him as the honored guest. You know, um, he taught us if we come into a banquet and take the highest seat, then we run the risk of being lowered to the lowest seat in front of everybody. So he teaches us at a banquet, come and take the lowest seat in the house and then you can be raised up to the honored place. But at least you can't go lower. Well, we have to realize he'll, he'll take his own advice, you know. God might be present, but if we're driving our own agenda, he'll take the lowest seat. That's what he does. You know, Philippians 2, he came to the lowest place. Ephesians 4, the, you know, the lower parts of the earth. He went, he went lower than any of us have ever gone. Ever. He always takes the lowest seat. He's not going to take the highest seat. At least not in this age, not the way we do things. He, he, he wants to be welcomed up to the highest place. Or he'll take the lowest seat. And he'll be there, but it's like, hey, lowest seat. It's just the way he is. We don't want him to have the lowest seat, but he'll take it. So we should then invite him up to the highest. Amen. So let's, how, how do we honor God's presence? By honoring his presence, making him central. Making Jesus king, even though he already is. The third way that I have comes from Romans 12.11. Burn. Romans 12.11 says, don't, lack, don't, lack behind, don't lag behind in diligence. Boil in your spirit, serving the Lord. Uh, the, the Lord's just been stirring my heart lately and 
I just want to share a little bit about that with you. Um, he just has been speaking to my heart, fire, don't forget to burn. You know, God's fire has fallen from heaven and we keep it stoked, right? I just want to encourage you, God loves fire. Let's burn for the Lord. Sometimes we can we can tend to be a little bit passive in an environment that's that's more family and relational oriented and we kinda of wait you know we kinda of wait almost to a fault in terms of our expressions of worship or just our devotion in general. I just want to encourage everyone here to burn. We have the fire. Look, there's a carnal hype. We're mature enough in the Lord, this group. We're not going to fall into some kind of carnal hype and make something happen. On the other hand, we could try to avoid that by just being flat and forgetting that we're on fire. You know, love relationships require passion. doesn't mean you're always yelling, but there's a passion there. There's a focus. There's a, there's a, a, a burden. There's an engagement Remember our revival heritage, you know, whether we've been in an actual revival or we're just good old Pentecostals. We have a heritage where the fire of heaven has fallen, and we should steward that heritage. You're okay, thanks. Don't be distracted by Thomas right now. (laughs) We should steward, you know, things have happened in my own life that God's not doing outwardly, manifestly, the way he used to. I believe it's going to happen again. But I still have something that I'm responsible, a deposit, which again, I think we heard today. We have a deposit that we're meant to steward. Just like the priests of old, the fire came down on the altar, but they had to keep it stoked. I remember this one time. It happened to be, oh, February 5th, 1997. I remember the date. It was Wednesday, Old Testament survey class. And I was teaching on the tabernacle. So this is in a revival school, and I'm teaching on the tabernacle because I'm by this time going through Exodus. It was February, so we're still near the beginning of the Old Testament. And I was you know, talking about you know, different things, explaining the tabernacle, but how you know, God, who's present everywhere, chose to dwell in a house that he designed, but it was pitched. At this stage, it was a tent. It had to be pitched and put together by his people. And I said, that's the way God operates. He's present everywhere, but he keeps wanting to manifest his presence. You know, we talked about the dove already. You know, even the Sabbath day was the day of rest, right? What does that mean, the day of rest? Well, it means God took up residence in his creation. That's why he rested on the seventh day. He wasn't tired. He made all this as a dwelling place. Because the language of rest is the language of residence. So the Sabbath means now God comes in and sits in his creation. So he takes up residence. It's a sweet picture. This is what, And by the way, that doesn't get replaced. Now God is mostly in here. But we can still experience his presence in creation. Which is awesome. That's why then the Israelites would always rest on the seventh day and honor God's presence. Anyway... In the building of the tabernacle, he intensified his presence in a certain place. So the whole story goes together. And I was explaining this, how he now took up residence in the tabernacle with the smoke we read about. And you know, one of the students up front starts to laugh and, and, and goes, uh, Brother Gladstone, what would they call me? Mr. Gladstone? 
Mr. Gladstone, that's just like revival. That's just like now. It's just like what's happening. God is manifesting his presence in a special way. And I said, yes, that's why I'm talking about this. And, um, of course, then we still all started to feel God's presence. There was this wooziness that started to affect us. I remember looking down at my notes thinking, okay, what's going to happen next? And then I looked back up, and there was this beautiful mist filled the whole room. It looked like fog. Not a, not a fog where you couldn't see the other person. It wasn't that dense. I use the analogy, which is a little bit negative, but it's the best one I can give to explain the physical trait. But it looked like suddenly it was like everybody had been smoking. It was about that density. Okay, it wasn't like I couldn't see the people, but I definitely would be seeing you through a mist. It was clear. Not everybody saw it, but most did. I'm like, do you see this between us right now? Because I looked up. I felt woozy, but I looked up, and the whole room looked different. It looked like about the density of a, of a bar room filled with smoke. I mean, it was very definite, very clear, this milky mist just among everybody. This is awesome and really scary. And we all just sat there staring at each other for a moment. <laughs> and... um then the place just exploded in praise and prayer and people running around <laughs> or one guy just running all around doing laps and um, there was a couple of times I saw mist and others would see mist in that place one time in our house I was alone that time I wasn't with others but there was this smoky presence and manifest presence very precious signs and wonders Marking God's presence, and uh, I don't long for the for the the physical wonders as much as I long for Him. But in as much as those are tokens of that, those are exciting times, and um, those were manifestations of God's response to our fire burning. I just really encourage us: let's burn for the Lord. Let's burn for. Let's go for the, the deeper experience of his presence. Let's engage. Part of burning means engage. Engaging God's presence, uh, it, it requires effort. Okay, we want to be inspired and led by the Spirit, but we don't want to so overdo that theology that we don't engage. Yes. It's like, you know, if, you're, if the dog's barking and you're paying attention to something else, I can tell that. Okay, no offense. <laughs> but it's like if, if, if everybody's staring, I mean, especially public speakers, I see this all the time to a degree. Not when I speak, when other people speak, of course. And, and I'm not talking about our group, but, you know, when I go to, you know, or I have class or something, especially certain students, you know, sometimes they're like, did you not get enough sleep in your last class? You had to bring a pillow into mine. Um, or, you know, you, you just see... When people are disengaged or engaged. And it's not just, it's not just the fact that they're looking. It, it's sometimes the look on their face. You could be like, even when you're talking to someone, have you ever noticed someone? You could tell they're not listening to a word you're saying, but they're looking right at you. But there's this glaze. It's like honey-baked ham. And there, we, Gene and I used to know this one guy. That he, you could see he was trying so hard to engage, but his mind was so somewhere else. And that's just conversational, and you can tell. But when someone's engaged, they're listening, and then they ask you a question about what you just said. And so they're not just listening, but they've now put away anything else in their head, and they're 
wrapping their brain around what you're saying and they're interested and they're like, well, what about so-and-so? And you're thinking, oh, they're like fully involved in what I'm saying right now. They're asking questions and, and, and they're thinking about it and they might even ask, you know, how they could help with that or something. So, you know, we might be physically present to one another, but we may not be engaging one another in heart or in conversation. How much more the Lord? We have the power to engage. We have the power not to engage. Burning means to engage His presence. That's part of worshiping in spirit and in truth. Right? If Jesus may not have had the Samaritan woman's heart at first, but man, you know, she didn't believe it very first. It didn't take her long to believe, but man, she was engaged in that conversation. And He hooked her, fished her right in. Because she was engaged. And He made her straightway into a worshiper. So I would encourage us, part of burning means engaging the Lord's presence. Okay, we may not have the smoke every morning, but we have God. And we can engage His presence, engage His heart. You know, praise the Lord. Get involved in praise. My soul does magnify the Lord, and my spirit does rejoice in God, my Savior. Sometimes it's all that it takes is just engaging God, and it kills all the distractions in an instant. Sometimes it just requires engagement. Engaging God is an element of burning. That's good. So I, I encourage us to burn. It's one of the ways we honor and steward God's presence. We burn. And I really encourage us in every situation, whether it's this or you know, the house churches or just you know, when you're on your own, engage. That's one of the things the Lord was reminding me of recently. He goes, you know, he's reminding me, you're on fire. Engage my presence. You have this. You have this thing. Engage. You know the way it means something to you personally. How much more does it mean something to the Lord? And finally, activate the gifts of the Spirit. And this is something we do, and we're good at doing it. And, and we're willing to do it, and we're practiced in it. So praise the Lord. But I encourage all the more. It's something we can get even better at. So I say this not in contrast to where we've been because it's good. We're very engaged that way in activating the gifts. But we're going to get better and sharper. And this is the kind of thing that starts to overflow into very powerful evangelistic efforts. When we learn how to operate in these gifts, they're going to happen naturally in any situation. But let me say a few things about this very quickly. And this is something I'm writing about right now in our great house church book. It's coming. I'm telling you, I've been working on it. But Paul actually gives instructions. And so to honor the Spirit, we must, we must honor the gifts in one another. That's, that's the way we steward His presence. Paul identified the two. You know, I gave a lot of insight from Old Testament things. Paul got right to prophecy. Prophecy and the Holy Spirit were associated very closely in both Old and New Testaments. So we must be prophetic if we're going to honor the presence of the Lord. All right? We may not see smoke, but we should be prophesying. Okay, an apostle would say, okay, glad you got some smoke, but we need you guys speaking the voice of the Lord. We need prophecy and the other gifts that prophecy represent, represents. All right, so first thing I want to say about that, our goal in activating the gifts, gifts is love. We're, we don't come even just to exercise our gift. We don't say it just because it's on our heart. We want to be conscious of the fact that we're going to be helping somebody. And we want to say it in that spirit. And you could change your... You might even be sincere before you give your gift. And you're not trying to interrupt or anything. You just want to give your gift. Well, good. We need that. Please do. But just 
throw one more ingredient into that stew, throw one more log on the fire, and that is a conscious love for the other people that you're going to try to help. This was Paul's emphasis. From 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, he was talking about a meeting around the Lord's table in particular. After the banquet part, they would share the Spirit. And Paul's whole theme was, you've got to love one another. If you're loving one another, then one's not going to get up and interrupt the other one, and all you're doing is blasting tongues. You're not trying to help anybody, because we don't even know what you're saying. You're just trying to show off your giftedness. Well, you know what? We don't have a problem with that. You and I, we don't have any problem with that. We're not like that at all. But you still, we get the positive extraction from that, and that is, let's fervently love one another in the giving of the gift. In fact, may that motivate us to prepare ourselves outside the meeting so that we're on fire when we come in, thinking, Lord, how will you use me today? You know, Maybe not every single person can share during the, when we're gathered, uh, and, and the, the smaller house groups have more potential for that. And that, even that we have to steward. That comes later. But there's other things we can do in conversations if we're thinking, Lord, what do you have? Do you have a word of encouragement for someone? Hey, I, you know what? On the way here, the Lord put you on my heart. And I want to encourage you, don't give up on this certain thing. And maybe God will give you a word of knowledge. And that person's life will be changed because they came to the house of the Lord and met with you. So just be motivated by love. All right. Number two, and really I only have two basic points here. So the second one is, figure out your cross section of gifts. The end. Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. Let me explain a little bit about that. All right, my cross section, what I mean by that is between three passages of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 3 through whatever it is, verse 11, where he lifts the nine gifts that are manifest in a, in a gathered ecclesia around the Lord's table. All right, there's the manifestation gifts, or they're, they're gifts of speech and power. Okay, Go through that passage on your own. Okay, professor's giving you an assignment. 1 Corinthians 12, verses, you know what I'm talking about, verses 3 through 11 or something. Okay, these are the speech and power gifts. Go through that passage and, and let, it ref, let it be a mirror that's reflecting you. Which gifts do you tend to operate in? Or which ones do you strongly desire? There's some, you know, I can't go through right now all the ways to do that. That's not where I'm going right now. Maybe we can talk more about it in the future, but at least between you and the Holy Spirit, for the sake of your church, go through that list and say, Lord, which one am I here? Desire any of them, and you can manifest any of them, but which ones do you tend toward? How are you designed to help your little tribe? Um, Okay, the second list, which overlaps some, but these are gifts of influence, local influence, and some call them motivational gifts. But the other cross-section is Romans 12, 4 through 8. Prophecies listed again there. But so is helps. So is exhortation. There's other gifts there that influence other people. And some people call them motivational gifts. But it's a different list with a little bit of a different twist. So go through that one too. And which ones there do you tend to operate in or strongly desire? All right? Now, in the past, several of our groups have taken weeks on at a time to prophesy over one another and draw things out of that. When I see this in you, I see that in you. Praise the Lord. That was awesome. Now, I'm asking you to do you. 
You go to the Lord in these passages and answer the question, which cross-section of these three passages do I see in me? And Lord, how can I implement them? And then I want you guys to come together and discuss what you saw in you so that we can talk about how then you can help the whole with that. Because now you're going to go do your homework and you're just going to be, we're still going to talk about it. We still want to bring the best out of one another. But we want to be now individually responsible to do something. In the, in the smaller picture of our meetings, in the larger picture of mission, what can we do? And now we're going to start putting together the puzzle of how we are family on mission from that. Okay, the third passage I didn't even get to yet. The gifts of leadership in equipping the saints in Ephesians 4. Which of the five do you gravitate toward? Now listen, that may not mean you're one of those five. Or it may mean you are. But even those who aren't either now called because they're not in season for that or they're not generally called to be specifically one of the five, they're still going to represent categories where you find great interest and burden. You know, if you put Scott Volk and I together, my burden to see the apostolic design of a church is going to be much greater in me than it's going to be in Scott. Scott's going to be much more concerned about pastoring individuals. Now he has the added burden of Israel, which is very prophetic in him, by the way. So we can even add that. But if I just take Scott, my friend Scott Volk, he's a pastor. Most of you know him. He's going to be much more burdened to pastor people and lead them with compassion along the way. So um, there's, he's not in argument with me. But I'm going to carry something much more consistently in one area. He's going to carry something more consistent in others. Where do you sit in all that? Are you, do you have more of a burden for the lost? Do you have more of a burden for bringing prophecy? Things are more black and white. And are you more pastoral? Just at least what category do you gravitate toward? Answer that question. And between that, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, what does that add up to in your life? And what can you do to manifest that cross-section to edify the saints and to make our mission more effective? You might wind up with a specific... Now, I mean this as a house church. Your house church might wind up with an assignment when you start putting the pieces together in different ways. You might wind up saying, wait a minute, there's something coming out here. God may be calling us to reach this neighborhood in such and such a way now. Or to go partner with King's Kitchers. I mean, God may speak just out of that as you put your puzzle pieces together individually. You come together collectively. God may just start to speak out of that. But the more deliberate we are about honoring our gifts, the more we honor his presence. So that's your assignment. We're still going to meet like this for, I think, two more weeks. For those of you who are gathering anyway, you can start this right away. For those of you that aren't, you can wait till we're done with these teaching meetings. But let this be your assignment. You guys can sort it out as house churches. What's my cross-section? That's what you're answering. Take some time, pray about it, study, journal, whatever. What's my, and let the Lord speak to you, because he surely will. What's my cross-section? And then when you get together, help one another figure out, what does that mean I can do practically to help y'all? What can I do? And so when you do discuss it, it might take weeks. You know, you're going to have to meet out enough time or whatever. Or if you're all going to do it at once, you know, you have to measure your time. But um, that's your assignment. 
Uh, yes, sir. Could you speak briefly to contrasting between the Lord giving you gifts and asking for forgiveness? Contrast between asking the Lord for gifts you don't have or operate in and what you do have. Um, I'm not, let's see. How, I mean, you want to do both. There's going to be some things that you operate in. And you have, on the one hand, even if you're not as strong in it, you might have a great burden for it, which would give you indication that you do have that deposit. But you're also allowed to ask for gifts you don't have because Paul says, be zealous for the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. I go for all of them. I even tend to really fervently pray for those I tend not to operate in as much. And then, you know, I'll turn around and God will use me in the word of wisdom like night follows day. I mean, it just happens all the time or in prophecy. You know, uh, Pastor Cho used to say he was always pray for the gift of healing, always pray for a gift of healing. He wanted healing and then God would give him a prophecy. But there's nothing wrong with still wanting that healing or the miracle working. Um, so I, I don't know how to contrast them when they probably should be going together. But there's going to be things you either operate in or have a burden for. So I would recognize those things as the deposits. But we have license to go for anything. But just the one thing to temper that with, okay? When we're together, we're going to complement one another. There's going to be some people who operate in some things more than other others under normal circumstances. So we want to complement one another. We want, to, we want to be able to do that, not just everybody do everything. But in any situation, God can use you however he wants to. Yeah, I can testify to wonderful healings the Lord has done through our ministry, but there's times I've wanted much more of it and just seems to be not as much as I wanted there. Yet I thank God for the awesome things, including recent things that we've seen. And yet other things we'd like to see more consistent. So I keep going after that, even though I flourish in other areas. Um, so there's a contrast for conversation, but they could go together hand in hand. I'm not sure that answers your question. Comes close enough? We must be free unilaterally to go across the board with all of them. I mean, I do not have the gift of administrative wisdom. But every once in a while, I'll get this... <laughs> I got this whole plan once at fire. And it was like, Dr. Brown used to ask me, do you think we should go to a trimester system? And I, it's just, I used to whine, please don't ask me questions like that. I just want to pray and prophesy. It's such a burden. You know what I'm talking about? I have certain things are like, I don't want to mess with that. And one day I woke up with this plan. And I saw the whole thing. And I got Gina and Beth, who was my, my assistant at the time, and Kathy Good and these three gals. And I just gave them just generally, but you do the math. And it just all worked out. As I, God never uses me in that area. I say never, like commonly. Even now, it's like I just can't see it. I can't get it. I need help. But every once in a while, it'll happen. So let the Lord do whatever he wants. We can be zealous for anything, but... He's going to use you in your strengths too. Some people have a philosophy. You've got to work on your strength, your weaknesses. Always your weaknesses. Pete Rose, the baseball player, used to say, I'm strong in certain things, but I work on my weaknesses. That's why I'm so great. Other people say, yes, but don't get so distracted by your weaknesses. We need your strengths. Work them up. So, <laughs> two philosophies. You've got to figure out your season, I guess. But at least we know we need your strengths. But we're free to work on anything else. Yes, ma'am. And we have the Holy Spirit for any any situation. Like sometimes I think we limit ourselves to thinking, well, I only 
but, right. but and that may be true that you are strong in that but the Holy Spirit can give you anything at any time that you need you know so we should be relying on him and realizing realizing that he is there and available at any time for anything right amen and you know he can give you that gift instantaneously even Absolutely. if it's not something that you have normally amen yeah there's no limits Desire earnestly the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. For sure, we have them all. Praise God. Thank you, Father, for this privilege to meet together. Lord, for this beautiful weather that reminds us of your love, this wonderful forest that we have church in. It reminds us of your genius, your wisdom, your love, your compassion. It's just such a privilege to be out here with you and with one another and to be a part of this this great work not just what we're doing but what you're doing in our city and even in our nation thank you thank you thank you Lord. thank you for the new covenant for the blood of the new covenant for the gift of the spirit we're in awe of the fact that you the sovereign transcendent God has given us your presence inside of our hearts in the midst of our friendships you are present you are the present God as well as the transcendent God, and there is no other. We embrace you. We thank you for your kiss this morning. Those sweet messages from the Word, Lord. It was something unique and special. Thank you. Lord, we easily forget these things. We pray for help in the Holy Spirit to remind us of words you've given us. We pray for a, a fresh release of your fire uh, in our hearts. We pray for those who couldn't be here but are with us in spirit, that you will give them the the riches and the inheritance of this time we've had together prophetically. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you will build your church your way, Lord. We're not building it. Uh, we say it that way sometimes, but ultimately you're building it. We want to we want to partner with you. Please do be present, building your church your way, because you're king and you're Lord and you deserve it. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we do pray. Amen.